Hello, I'm Cinebuzz. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast Trees. If you've been listening to the podcast over the last couple of years, you know I love trees. Although I had to pollard a couple of trees in my garden, where a bit of a tale to be told. The way that we look at nature is a fundamental part of our pathway to net zero. And many people are talking about something, you may have heard the term of natural capital. You know, using things in our nature that we could use as either carbon sinks or try and offset kind of the, some of the stuff that we do. One thing that people have been looking at is kind of forestry uh, in terms of sustainable forestry, in terms of things like where we source our materials for the paper industry, and we've done podcasts on that, but also about the use of kind of trees and planting as kind of, you know, financial tools. And that's one thing I really wanted to look about, kind of sustainable forestry and kind of a whole idea of carbon markets. What's that all about? And that's the subject of today's podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Kelly, who is co-founder of Sustainable Forestry Company. Uh, what's, what's it called? Foresight? Foresight. Is that, that, is that the full name? Foresight Sustainable Forestry Company. I like it. You've got the foresight there, Richard. That's good. <laughs> Tell me your background. Are you an agriculture person? Are you a finance person? How did you come to set this up? Yeah, so I'm probably describe myself as sort of a, a finance person with a with a sort of an entrepreneurial background. Mm-hmm. I've been working at Foresight Group, who are the um, investment manager for Foresight Sustainable Forestry, for about eight and a half years. And for the last four to five years, I've been solely focused on natural capital, forestry, and afforestation. And with a colleague, Rob, who's the, the co-founder of Foresight Sustainable Forestry, we co-founded the investment team at Foresight Group, yeah. looking at forestry and, and afforestation. But prior to that, I was I headed up a, a team looking at new product development and looking at new opportunities with a sustainability lens. And so prior to forestry, I launched four to five other sustainably themed funds that have gone on to attract about one and a half billion of, of external investment. And then started to become really interested in in forestry and moving beyond just renewables. Yeah. That was the genesis for for the idea. I mean, foresight, for, for listeners who don't know, you're basically a, a fund, an investment fund, aren't you? That's what the group is. I think it's been around since the 80s. Is that right? But investing in various things? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So foresight group was founded in 1984. Originally, it was uh, investing in technology. Yeah. Um, but about 15 years ago, it was sort of an, an early participant in uh, an investor in um, renewables and really pioneered investment at scale into solar power and has since expanded that into a whole spectrum of renewable energy in- investment. And, and this is, yeah, and that's a really interesting thing because, you know, I've always been, you know, our, our whole ethos is better business, better planet. And the idea is that actually you do need, you know, you need the oil majors, you need the finance houses, you need all these players come on board and look at it. And I suppose Foresight was slightly kind of ahead of the game, really, because green finance, well, 15 years ago, no one no one ever thought about it, would they? No, and I think what is unique about us is, is that sustainability, you know, a passion about trying to resolve the climate emergency that, that we are in is really within our DNA. It's something that we've been solely focused on as an organization for you know well over a decade now. We were talking about sustainability and ESG well before many others and before it became a popular term. So yeah, it's really in our in our DNA and uh, everyone um, in the business is passionate about it. So tell me what foresight does the the sustainable forestry what what is sustainable forestry in your eyes because this is a very interesting one two quick questions what does it mean and where does it happen because there's loads of talks i've done endless podcasts on biomass and i've had people who 
hate it and people who love it. And I, I've grown to understand it and I can respect it because there's an instant, I don't know whether it's a kind of primordial reaction to people when you say forestry, because they kind of think, particularly British people, we think trees should be all left and it's all lovely. Whereas if you're in Canada, they <laughs> they slice down forests and replant them and off they go, same in the Nordics. So two things, what is sustainable forestry as you see it? And where do you see it being a market? Yeah, so sustainable forestry is about enabling forestry and the, and the creation of timber, which is inherently a, arguably the most sustainable material on the planet. It's, it's carbon negative and it's about producing uh, that timber, but in a sustainable way. And that means producing the timber in a way that is sensitive to all sorts of local considerations, whether that be the soil, biodiversity, sensitive to local communities. It's forestry, but that is done in a sustainable way and that can continue without threatening, you know, any of those things that I've that I've mentioned. And inbuilt in our ethos is we completely recognize that forestry perhaps does have a tarred reputation, particularly some of the afforestation schemes that um, occurred in the, the 70s and 80s in the UK that were monocultures yeah, yeah. planted unsensitively. And what we're all about is is trying to, to sort of rectify that. We are trying to be an industry leader uh, in sustainable forestry and to try and right many of those wrongs that were done in the past. So often we're acquiring forests that were planted in the 70s and 80s and actually we're restructuring those forests so it means you know doing away with monocultures harvesting that the timber and then restocking with a fundamentally more biodiverse mix of tree species more sensitively designed around riparian buffers considering local habitat considering the local community and landscape considerations for example so it's about forestry but in a fundamentally more sustainable way and where do you do it so well, for Foresight Sustainable Forestry Company, we are primarily focused on on the UK. And that is because the UK is sadly one of the least forested countries in Europe. It's funny because if you went around, you'd think, well, you go down to the new forest, or you go up, you, you think, oh, there's quite a lot of trees or you go to Scotland. But actually, yeah, I think overall, our actual, the amount of landmass that's forest or wild forest is quite low, isn't it, in this country? It's it's really low. Across the UK, there's only 13% canopy cover. Wow. And that compares to, on average, about 47% on average across Europe. And places like Sweden and Finland are up at 80%. Yeah, yeah. And so what that means is that there, there is strong demand for timber within the UK, mm-hmm. but the domestic supply is insufficient and so as a result we import 80 to 85 percent of all timber um, that is consumed within the uk and what that does is globally only about a third of timber comes from sustainable forests the rest of it comes from natural and semi-natural forests and so by importing so much timber from abroad we are effectively exporting deforestation pressure into other parts of the world yeah and so what we are looking to achieve is to increase the homegrown supply of uk sustainable timber and we believe that that will play a role in reducing deforestation pressure elsewhere in the world i think you've bought sort of 50 sites so far and i commend the idea i think the idea is great right people have heard of deforestation not many people have heard of afforestation but basically planting trees but you already hit a couple of things that that were interesting there with such a low percentage how do you go about finding the land that's the first question because if you go into a forest that's already there and like you say some of the ones that were 
planted with just one one type of tree and then you go right i'm going to just redo that i could get that but are there any places you actually go and go right you know what this is an actual i don't know brown field or semi brown field site that we can return to forestry or does it not like that work like that do you have to go to somewhere that's already a forest and try and expand it rather than trying to plant something brand new in a place that might have been you know even semi-urban yeah, so the opportunities for afforestation that we're seeing are primarily completely new properties, completely new sites. So where do you choose them then? Where do you go about looking for that? Well, so we have literally mapped all of Scotland, all of Wales and all of northern England. And we've overlaid a whole series of map-based criteria that contribute towards a scheme being suitable for afforestation. And these are things like soil maps transportation routes, local topology, landscape considerations, to name but a few of about the 25 to 30 criteria that we use. And we have identified four and a half thousand specific properties that extend over about 900,000 hectares that have all of the characteristics that we believe would make them excellent candidates for afforestation. And to put that into perspective, that is about 90% of the total amount of afforestation that the UK government is, um, is targeting to achieve by 2050 as part of its net zero plan. It's looking to add about a million hectares of, of afforestation, and that would take the UK's forestry canopy cover from 13% currently to about 17%. So we know exactly where properties are that are highly suited to, to afforestation, and we you know, specifically target these properties um, as acquisition targets. So you don't have to go into specifics, but give me an example of one. What are you saying you'd go and find a, a large warehouse site, factory site, or would you go and find yeah. a bit of heathland or what's what are you talking about and what is it that makes it right i assume you've got to look at all the soil and the amount of light and water and all of that stuff in the site anyway but what is it that you're looking for because you know everyone likes the idea of greenery <clears throat> i'm very lucky i live like two minutes away from a whole bunch of open heathland and you know kind of woodland but you know i didn't used to i used to live in a really built up area mm-hmm. and although we may want to you can't build you can't put forests everywhere no so where where we are developing afforestation sites they are in very rural parts of the countryside so most of them are in central and south scotland aberdeenshire and also in countryside in in wales and typically the sort of land is well it's not arable land so we're never taking productive farmland that can support crop growth out of circulation that remains completely unaffected that's good yeah the sort of land tends to be rough grazing and pasture land right it's typically it's prior sheep farms gotcha gotcha what are you planting so we have a commercial focus but we plant a a whole range of different species so on the on the the conifers they're the the main species that we harvest yeah um include things like norway spruce sitka spruce douglas fir mixes of conifers which are considered commercial and and we harvest well there's a lot of those in the highlands yeah which they use for timber aren't they quite a lot yeah and that's there what is harvested and used as um, for timber we're also planting a significant proportion of broadleaves and there's a whole mix of different species but typically we might be planting sort of 25 percent of what we're planting is is native broadleaves but it really varies by property by property some sites are very well suited to be very timber focused and and have a lower proportion of of broadleaves other sites less well suited for commercial timber production, but much more suited for, uh, you know, a more nature positive 
play and a much higher proportion of um, of native broadleaves. And within within the native broadleaves, we're also making significant efforts and planting literally tens of thousands of trees, which are um, deemed as critically rare and endangered species. So tree species such as juniper, holm oak, black poplar are some of the kind of critically rare and endangered species that we're that we're planting as well. So if you look at kind of, as I said, let's follow the money, right? I get it. You go and find a, a bit of heathland or farmland. You then plant trees. You then harvest those trees. So a couple of quick questions asked on that. One is trees then grow quickly. <laughs> so how long does it take to take a bit of land? And then say, let's say you're turning it into a timber forest before you can actually start mm. to get any yield out of that. And for any of your investors to go, thank you very much, Richard, I've got a return on that. And the second one is for the other sites, which basically, from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're sort of building a sort of carbon sinks. The idea is there is people can do their offsetting or something through that. So let's go through the two things. One, if you take something from arable land, become a forest the time scale and how long for any returns on the timber type of things yeah so the first thing to mention is that we are unusually a total return fund um rather than um offering a you know a regular income ah. so we're looking to target a total return and that is helpful because it it means that we can take a longer term view and we're more focused on the capital appreciation the value of the assets rather than the income that those assets will provide and completely acknowledge that forestry income from timber, it's every 35 to 40 year yeah. is yeah. sort of rotation length. So our business model for the afforestation, we would acquire the land unconsented. So it wouldn't have planning permission, the grant or be registered with the Woodland Carbon Code. We would secure all three of those things. And that would typically take one to two years. Right typically. And then we would physically plant that site with our sort of sensitively designed scheme. There's then a further three years of what we call establishment. And that's where the trees are getting established. There will be a mortality rate of, it's a good scheme, sort of about 10% mortality. So each of those three years will beat up those failed saplings and restart with new trees such that three years after we planted it we we now have a sort of a fully established very young forest and our business model with the afforestation is that we're looking to then exit the freehold so we're looking to then sell the property within the few years after you know shortly after ah. we've planted it and the business model we've acquired the land it's relatively cheap pasture and grazing land and we've converted it into something that's fundamentally more valuable in the form of a, of a commercial forest and so we look to sell the property and bank uh, you know an attractive level of capital appreciation right okay now i get where you're coming from and then we recycle the capital into future waves of afforestation so we have a permanent development pot mm. i mean the current portfolio of afforestation just to give you a sense of scale we're expecting to plant for over 4,000 hectares with the current portfolio over the next couple of years. And that's equivalent to a third of all of the planting that the UK managed to achieve in the last year where data is available in 21-22. So this is a, a very significant step change in levels of, of afforestation. You know, and it, it forms a key part of the UK government's net zero plan. What about the idea of the carbon sinks? Okay, so the things that are not timber, uh, I think you call them native broadleaves earlier, uh, and I'm assuming that's kind of a mix of things like 
was it ash and other trees that are normal common ones yeah mm. what is the return on that and who is investing to say hey thanks very much you built me a forest with all this stuff but i can't chop any of it down yeah so the native the broad leaves that are planted there's always a, a proportion of them yes we can't harvest those trees but what we do create is voluntary carbon credits which recognize that over a hundred years yeah these trees will grow and, and sequester carbon directly from the atmosphere. Um, and so for each tonne of carbon that's sequestered, uh, we are being issued with a voluntary carbon credit. But it's worth noting that we are also receiving voluntary carbon credits for the commercial trees that we do harvest. And we receive that because the, the Woodland Carbon Code, which is the body that issues and certifies these credits, they're looking at the average amount of carbon that is stored in this newly established forest over the next 100 years so and by law you're obliged to restock so there is an additional carbon sink even with the uh, establishing these these commercial trees which are harvested but we do get more carbon credits per hectare of of broadleaf planting partly because we're not we're not harvesting them you've had a mixed bag some people obviously love it but you've also had local opposition to it i know that how do you respond when people say well you know you're not using native species certain conifers that might threaten biodiversity or that you're not working uh to you know do what's right for the the local area sort of you know is this going to affect wider use of land? You know, that arboland could be used for food production eventually, or a farmer might want to change their mind. How have you gone about sort of dealing with things like that? And how do you answer criticism about those lines of kind of, you know, non-native species? Well, look, we are in the midst of a climate emergency and the world's climate is changing very rapidly indeed. And we believe that planting a diverse mix of different species, native and non-native, is important to ensure that our forests are resilient. We don't know with any degree of certainty what the, what the future climate looks like in the UK. Yeah. And so we believe one of the best ways to protect and create resilience within forestry is, is a diversified mix of, of, of different species. And some of those could be native or, non, or non-native. But have you got, and that, what I'm saying is, have you got sort of botanical evidence or whatever to, to, to back that up, that these trees couldn't suddenly cause an issue later down the line? Because we don't know. You know, it's like Japanese knotweed. I mean, I'm not saying you're planting knotweed, but no one ever thought what would happen with things like that and certain certain types of, of pine as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to give you some comfort, we're not planting tr- tree species that have not right. already been in the UK for, for many decades. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is they are sort of native to here anyway. They're not like suddenly coming off, off a boat from Thailand or India or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, the comparable is um, sheep are non-native to the UK, but no one is concerned about the millions of sheep that we farm. Yeah, we're not concerned about that. Where's your view on all of this? Because it sounds like you're doing all of this, looking for longer term returns, as you said. You're looking to sell, but you're also trying to create a carbon market with the carbon credit. A lot of people have said that carbon markets are the future, and I kind of do agree with that. But we're nowhere near anything. And as you said, it's all voluntary. So my question to you would be, a company that's, you know, looking to try and do something, and and I'm all for localised carbon, right? So let me put that right out there. I really think, you know, I, I don't agree with ideas going, well, you know, I've done a lot of pollution, but here I go. I've planted some trees in Madagascar. How do I know? Who knows it? Who's checking it? 
etc what do you see the way this this is going to work because you're relying i assume at present on a business model which is based on people's willingness to get, to do good knowing that there could be a value in it but there isn't a financial value in it at present well look, i think it, well, it's important to note that carbon credits that we are creating are as i mentioned issued by the wooden carbon code um, which is a quasi uk government body and those credits can only be used for offsetting either by uk companies or by international companies, but that have UK operations. So there is no possibility that the credits that we're creating could be used by non-UK entities and sort of exporting of of credits. It, It must be. And I think the market also works in a way where the buyers of these credits, they tend to pay a premium for credits that come from a local forest um, or a local scheme. And we do see the market operating locally. And these companies, they they buy the credits, they often want, you know, naming rights, or they want the sign above the forest. They often run, you know, training days, and they get their staff out to help plant trees and help to manage the forest. And so a forest that is relatively local to operations works well for companies. And it, it also means that the market for credits tends to be relatively local. So I think we envisage that our credits will ultimately go to generally local companies and businesses. Is there interest? Look, I think absolutely there is interest, you know, since we have started, we've seen the price of voluntary carbon credits more than triple or quadruple in that time. And what is really gives me hope is the level um, and acceleration of companies who are making net zero pledges and science-based net zero pledges, you know, the highest integrity form of a pledge, which means a science-based pledge requires a 90% yeah. decarbonization of of your activities yeah. and then you can only use carbon credits for the final 5 to 10% that are considered so hard to abate as they call yeah yeah the unabatable there is literally an exponential increase in the number of of companies making these science based pledges and this is all future demand for voluntary carbon credits quickly coming down the track. And there is a forecast, there's a, there are many studies out there, but there is a, a forecast shortage of particularly high integrity voluntary carbon credits of, of the sort that we're producing, which are around nature restoration and, and planting trees as soon as 2028. And so, yeah, the, the levels of actual offsetting currently are relatively low but given the you know the acceleration of these pledges we are excited and it gives us hope about you know the state of the future world the kind of level of commitment that we're seeing from corporates the other really interesting thing is that there is a common myth out there that actually and you I think you mentioned it earlier that carbon credits popular narrative it gives polluters a license to emit yes yes and the fact is that that is a is just simply not true. There's a, a recent study by Trove Research, which has surveyed 4,000 of the biggest companies globally. And actually, companies that use carbon credits are decarbonizing twice as fast as those who don't. And also, companies who use higher integrity credits are also decarbonizing even faster. So what that and that is a statistically significant peer-reviewed analysis, which is you know clearly it hasn't been covered in the in the sort of the popular narrative, but it's but that is the truth of it is that you know and the IPCC 
The International Panel on Climate Change has recognised that there is no credible pathway to one and a half degrees without negative emissions and the and the use of voluntary carbon credits. So we, we believe that all of those factors point to a, you know a positive future and a, a rapidly expanding market for voluntary carbon credits. My last bit before we end is, and this sounds great, you're a big fund, it's all there. What does it mean for smaller businesses? Because I've always thought that this is the issue that you know, you're a large multinational, you're a big manufacturer, whatever you are, that's great. They work with you, plant some trees, do all of that. What are you offering for smaller companies who want to do something, who want to be part of this future market? Have you got any options for that? Or is that still a little bit way down the line? Yeah, so, well, companies can invest and individuals can invest in in foresight sustainable forestry. So smaller companies can buy a share. And because we're listed on the stock exchange, there's a company can invest, you know, from price of a single share. So, you know, our carbon credit offering to investors, it works for the very biggest corporates, right the way down to the very smallest. And I think it's also worth noting that we are also making very significant contributions to local communities and and small companies in the, the regions in which we operate. The current afforestation portfolio is going to require 750 individuals and something like 11,000 person days over the next couple of years to establish these, these forests. You know, every single one of the nine million trees that we're planting in the next nine um, in the next two years is hand planted, and it's it's highly labour intensive. And so we're working with numerous contractors and and companies to create you know a significant level of employment within the communities within which we operate. I really appreciate that. Thank you for your time. It's given me a real insight, and obviously for the listeners, it'd be great to hear what you think. Email us at nethero at futurenetzero.com. Richard, really interesting take. And, you know, I wish you luck with it. As I said, I do think the whole idea is generally a sound one. But obviously, as you know, people are always sceptical about certain things. So it's always good to see. And I suppose they can go to your site, see all your credentials, what you're doing around it. And uh, I'm sure you're happy to engage. And if anyone wants to ask questions to find out about how you make sure you're doing things the right way which I think you are. Absolutely. I think one of the key drivers for why we listed on the stock exchange was because of the heightened transparency rules. And so as a listed company, we, you know, we have a very high degree of transparency around, you know, all of the properties that we own, all of the trees that we're planting. And, you know, we have nothing to hide and we, yeah, we're delighted to talk to communities and, um, and anyone who's interested. Well, here's to a greener Britain in a few years time. <laughs> Cheers to that. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Thanks so much, Sumit. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business better planet.